This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Father, take these words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them and take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. For we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know we're doing a series on the prophets. And we did Ezekiel a couple of weeks ago and looked at a passage in Amos last week. And today we're looking at a passage in Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah was an 8th century BC prophet. Uh, He prophesied some, somewhere around between 740 and 700 BC. And his, uh, the time in which he was prophesying was a time of some uh, socio-political tension. The Assyrian Empire was on the ascendancy, and later, as we saw two weeks ago, the Babylonians would take over from the Assyrians as the major power of the day. But Isaiah tells us, as do the other prophets, that the root of Israel's problems is not social or political. The root of Israel's problems was spiritual. It was about idolatry and immorality. All of the prophets warned Israel, echoing the warning that goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. After uh, God had delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. In the, in the book of Deuteronomy, as Moses is preaching to them, we have this. He speaks God's word saying, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes, Then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. All the way back in the time of Moses. The people of Israel were warned. And now, during the period of the monarchy, the prophets, one after the other, get up and they warn Israel again, pleading with Israel to return to the Lord, to turn their hearts back to the one who loved them first, to obey him and not to worship false gods. Isaiah ministered during a period when Israel was both in decline and under threat. But Isaiah does much more than utter warnings and threats. Isaiah foresees uh, disaster and exile and punishment on the one hand, but also return from exile, deliverance, a deliverance which will look like a new exodus, and most importantly, a kind of salvation that will come from one described as God's servant. One who will suffer on behalf of others, 
who will bear the sins of others and so bring salvation. And not just to Israel. This salvation will not simply be a return from exile, although it will be that. It will not just be forgiveness of sins, sins being those things which caused the exile in the first place. It will not just be for Israel, but it will be for many. For many. The chapter before the, the passage which we read this morning, in chapter 56 of Isaiah, we get a little glimpse of this vision. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For soon my salvation will come and my deliverance be revealed. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from the people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus the Lord says to the, says, for thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me, who hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable in my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. I will gather yet others, not just the outcasts of Israel, but foreigners, people who had not been members of Israel in the first place. Isaiah's vision of salvation is, in fact, as big as his vision of God. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has a vision of this God sitting on a throne and those around him, the angels around him, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Not just Israel, not just the temple, not just the people of Israel, but the whole earth. We need to get this into our minds because it's a huge vision. It's a universal vision, a vision that includes not just Israel, not just those who return from exile, but salvation for the nations and for the, and for the Gentiles. And his vision extends even beyond the salvation of the nations. There are several passages that could be read in this regard from Isaiah, but let me just read one from Isaiah 11. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the, of the Lord 
as the waters cover the sea. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God is going to remake the world. Now at first glance, this passage looks as if it's a return to the Garden of Eden. It's actually better. It's the Garden of Eden, but transformed. There are snakes in this garden, but they are not dangerous. I don't know if you've ever come face to face with a cobra. It's a little disconcerting. They spit. Uh, They can blind people as well as when they bite them, death is usually fairly quick. But not these cobras and these adders, it seems, on this holy mountain. Children are going to play with them. Something new has happened here. This is not just uh, people receiving forgiveness of sins. This is God remaking the creation. Yes, Isaiah sees judgment coming to Israel. But he sees beyond that judgment to salvation, which is not just a return to pre-judgment times. It's not even a return to pre-sin times. But it's a time in which there will be no suffering, no pain, no war. But as Isaiah 35 says... A time of joy and singing. So it is within the context of this massive, enormous, immense, God-given perception that we find our Old Testament reading today. The first thing we need to remind ourselves as we look at Isaiah 58 is that judgment is real. Judgment is part of the reality that Isaiah is talking about. If we back up just a bit from the passage we read as our Old Testament reading, at the beginning of this chapter, we find that judgment is inescapable. It is a necessary part of the message that Isaiah is preaching. The root problem, as I've mentioned, is idolatry. The hearts of the people of Israel have been molded more by the gods of Canaan than by their own God. Most tragically, they have turned to the worship of Moloch, the high god of the Ammonites. Throughout the Old Testament, especially in the book of Leviticus, but he is mentioned, Moloch is mentioned in many other texts in 2 Kings and in Uh, Jeremiah and other places, Uh, Moloch is the most horrific of the gods of the Canaanites, and he is referred to in Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57, 4 says, Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree, and who slaughter your children in the valleys, under the clefts of the rock. The worship of Moloch included both ritual prostitution, probably for the purpose of fertility, both the production of children, but also for the production of a good harvest, And it also included the sacrifice of children in the fire. 
Isaiah 57, 13 says that, well, verse 4, which we read, says, Whom are you mocking? Well, in verse 13, God mocks the idols themselves. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. The idols are nothing. They're made out of wood. They're made out of stone. They're made out of metal. They don't see. They don't hear. They can't move. And yet God's people are worshiping them, burning their children in the fire in worship to Moloch and other gods of the Canaanites. Now the bulk of the blame for these abominable practices, Isaiah lays at the feet of the leaders of Israel. In verses 9 to 12 of chapter 56, Isaiah says, All you beasts of the field come to devour, all you beasts of the forest. His watchmen, Israel's watchmen, are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are like silent dogs that cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough, but they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let us get wine, let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. I preached at an ordination a few weeks ago, and at the ordination I mentioned that there are temptations which the clergy face, and they can be boiled down to this. To wine, to shine, and to recline. Some clergy like to, uh, like to look good. I, I should back up. Isaiah is talking about the religious leaders, but also the political leaders of Israel at his time. It's very hard to distinguish politics and religion in ancient Israel. And so he's condemning the prophets, he's condemning the false prophets, he's condemning the priests, and he's condemning the kings of Israel, the shepherds, the false watchmen. Well, clergy sometimes like to shine. There's, there's, a, there's an old saying that uh, if you go into a Roman Catholic vestry uh, where the clergy get their robes on, you will find a picture of the Pope. And if you go into a Methodist vestry, you will find a picture of John Wesley. And if you go to an Anglican vestry, you will find a full-length mirror. Cuts a little close to the bone. Some like to exalt themselves at the expense of others. Uh, there is also a danger in wine, and wine can be spelled two ways. Uh, before I was a bishop, I was an academic dean. Uh, I have seen whining. Uh, I know that people have a tendency, no matter who they are, to complain, to grumble. Moses knew about this, about the grumbling of the people of Israel in the wilderness. But the clergy whine and complain too. Sometimes they have reason, but sometimes, well, maybe not. But there's another kind of wine, isn't there? In this passage, drunkenness is a problem for the shepherds. 
Come, let us get wine, let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be just like today, great beyond measure. But there's another problem, and that is to recline, to be lazy, to not notice when things are going amiss, because we should have been paying attention, but we're not. Isaiah says that the watchmen of Israel are blind. Incredible irony. The watchmen, the ones who stand on the wall and should be looking out to see if the enemy is coming, they are the very ones who are blind. They are without knowledge. They are, Isaiah says, silent dogs. Wendy and I used to have a dog. It was a Great Pyrenees. I don't know if any of you know Great Pyrenees. They're very large animals. Uh, our, our dog, Caleb, a uh, big white dog, weighed 175 pounds, and he could bark. When a 175-pound dog barks, the neighbors notice. Uh, the guy jogging by the house notices. Uh, the groundhogs all around the area notice. Uh, usually Great Pyrenees work in pairs, and so what they'd do is bark, one would bark, and the one on the other side would do the response. It's a call and response thing. So they would, one would bark, the other would, would bark back, and they would know everything was okay. Everything's being taken care of. Unless they continue to bark, then there's a real problem. So we learned that what we needed to do when he barked was just stick our head out the door and say, thank you very much, and that was the response, and then he'd settle down. <laughs> but the watchmen of Israel, Isaiah says, are silent Dogs. Dogs who can't bark. Why can't they bark? Well, they're lying down. They're loving to slumber. They're not paying attention. They would prefer to recline than to watch. And so, there is judgment. Yes, because of the people, but also because of the leaders of the people who are not warning the people about what they're doing and how they're turning away from the Lord. So we turn to the passage we read as our Old Testament reading, which begins again, and Isaiah does this over and over again through his book, with a vision of who God is. Isaiah 57, 15 says, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. The God of Israel is above and beyond, quite literally, above and beyond all. He is high and lifted up. This is the same kind of vision that Isaiah has in chapter 6. He is beyond us. He is beyond our comprehension. He is completely other, completely different from us. That's what holy means. Completely separate, different, other. And yet, verse 15 goes on and says, And also, I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. The God who is above all. The God who is the one true King of kings and Lord of lords comes down. He comes down to be with us. To dwell with his people. He lives with the humble. 
with the needy, with the helpless, with us. And so this God goes on and says, For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the Spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath of life that I made. He will not be angry forever. Make no mistake, though, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is a God of anger. There's a really bad thing going around in some parts of the church today saying it's the God of the Old Testament that's the angry one and Jesus is is the nice one or the God of Jesus is the nice one. You can't divide the Bible up that way. Both Testaments proclaim God as a God of anger. How could God not be if he is the God of love? God could not be loving if he was not angry at the abuse of children, at the oppression of the poor by the rich, at the persecution of the innocent by the powerful. A God who is not angry at the evil of our world, at starvation and disease and war and genocide and human trafficking and terrorism and racism and injustice. A God who is not angry, who does not hate those things, cannot be a God of love. There is judgment. There is a God who is angry at sin Verse 17, because of the iniquity of unjust gain, I was angry. I struck Israel, I hid my face and was angry, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. The immorality and the injustice and the idolatry continued, even though God threatened and executed his judgment. But, says verse 18, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips, peace, peace to the far and the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. I will heal I will lead, I will restore, I will comfort, I will revive. The book of James says, mercy triumphs over judgment. Judgment is real, but God's judgment has a redemptive purpose. God purposes restoration, healing. The Hebrew word which sums all of this up, which is in verse 19, is the word peace, shalom, which doesn't mean simply the absence of conflict, but the presence of the kingdom of God, the presence of the rule of God, which orders all things aright. Peace, peace, God says, to the far and the near. 
I will heal him. Well, it doesn't end there. The oracle ends with another note of warning. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. There is no peace for the wicked, for those who refuse to turn or refuse to be healed. But for those who are willing, for those who are lowly and contrite, for those who turn around, there can be peace. There can be healing. Whether they are far off or whether they are near. It's difficult to know exactly what Isaiah means in this particular verse about those who are far off and those who are near. Perhaps he means the exiles who are far off and those who had to stay in the land after having had all their leadership taken away, after having all their institutions broken, who remained in Israel. Perhaps the far and the near are those. But if we look at throughout the book of Isaiah, including chapter 56, the, verse, the chapter just before this one, Isaiah makes it clear that God's concern is for the foreigners as well, for the nations, for the Gentiles, even for the enemies of God's people. Let me read just a passage from Isaiah 19. This is one of uh, the favorite passages of Christians in Egypt. You can see why in a second. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Now, in Isaiah's day, the two major powers of the world were Assyria on one side and Egypt on the other side, and Israel was trapped in the middle. On that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria. A blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Yes, perhaps the exiles can be considered far off, but there are those who are even farther off, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, the enemies of God's people that God wants to bring near. And Paul makes this clear in Ephesians, where he quotes this verse from Isaiah in our uh, New Testament reading this morning from Ephesians. We read that God has... Uh, made Jesus our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, the hostility between us. He has abolished the Torah with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace. Shalom, shalom, Paul says. And might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross. So he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. God's healing, his salvation, extends to the eunuch, to the outcast, to the exile, 
and even to the foreigner and even to the enemy of God's people. This is the vision of Isaiah. That one day, the anger of God will be spent. One day, the anger of God will be poured out. It will be poured out making peace. Making peace through the blood of the cross, Paul says. So that all who believe in that cross, all who trust in the one who died on that cross, may be made one family as a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth that God is going to bring in his time. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you that in Jesus you have made peace for those who are far off and for those who are near. As we come to your table this morning to take the bread and the wine, fill us with that peace which comes only through the cross of your Son, Jesus. For in his name we pray. Amen.